As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. The race is on and Max Verstappen made it a triple-header hat-trick with victory in the Austrian Grand Prix. As it was a repeat race at the Red Bull Ring, that's perhaps not a surprise, but is this the shape of things to come, or a track that flattered Red Bull in its battle with Mercedes? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer that question and many more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Mark, hello, you're enjoying yourself at the, the Red Bull Ring. A unique occurrence because we've now had four races at the same track within a calendar year. That's never happened before in the history of the World Championship. So, do you feel privileged to have witnessed history? I do a little bit. And um, also, the other bit of history, of course, is that Max Verstappen becomes the first driver in history to win a championship status Grand Prix three weekends in a row. So, yes, we've seen that too. Excellent. Always good to uh, break through some barriers. I imagine we'll have quadruple headers coming up uh, soon enough, despite the claims that we'll avoid it, even triple headers. So we've got a few more triple headers to come as well. And Scott Mitchell, as always, following from your Stockholm mansion. <laughs> and anyone who has ever tuned in to uh, the Thursday drivers press conferences or seen clips on social media will know that that is an absolute barefaced lie, <laughs> Has uh, Sebastian Vettel been scrutinising any of your furniture no, or he hasn't artwork? Referring to the uh, to the deer on the wall, it was actually very good eyes from Seb when he spotted that a few weeks ago. Um, it was, in fact, I was so impressed I didn't feel the need to correct him that he hadn't actually clocked the correct gender of the deer. So it's actually a doe. I should clarify: it's in fact a, it's it's a picture of a deer. I, I don't want to give the people the impression you've got some kind of trophy hunting room in your in your mansion that you're broadcasting from. Well, it is Sweden, so there's every chance. There's also every chance that a live one would just come prancing yep. through. It's it's so. a great shame that uh, those listening can't see you, just for the jeopardy of maybe if some Swedish wildlife uh, walks in. But uh, 
No, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's ever a great shame for anyone that they can't see me. I'm sure in, Sebastian so. Vettel's disappointed. He might be interested to know what books you've got on your shelves or or some such. But let's get on with the race, Mark. After the Styrian Grand Prix, I asked you if there was ever any doubts, given how straightforward Max Verstappen's win appeared to be. Given he got a rare Grand Slam, pole fastest lap and all laps led, I see no reason not to simply repeat the exact same question. It it was pretty straightforward, wasn't it? Yeah, his advantage this week was bigger. Um, They've made improvements in the car. The car is faster than it was last week. Um, Mercedes is static and... uh, wacky setup that they tried in the simulator didn't work in real life and the track temperature was about 20 degrees lower and the tyre selection was where one one step softer. The combined effect of all those things was that the Red Bull was uh, increased its advantage over the Mercedes and in qualifying it even got a McLaren between them. Yeah and just so comfortable Verstappen could make that extra pit stop as well just to make sure he had the tyres for fastest laps so this was this is probably the easiest win of, of the year for, for Verstappen. And we have to say, Mark, he is, he is pressing home that advantage, isn't he? Yes, the car was very, very strong. But we've asked the question, can Verstappen do it week in, week out in a championship fight? And that question has been answered resoundingly so far, hasn't it, in the, in the positive? Yeah, of course. I mean, I don't think any of us had any, any doubt, really, that he could do that. I mean, some some onlookers may have done, but anyone that's been following... Um, his career closely would know that um, all it all it would take would be a, um, a a car of this caliber, and he would be up and away. And of course, he is, and um, he's extracting absolutely everything from it. But I think his perspective has changed to that of a uh, somebody with his eye on the on the world title. You just you, you just see it in the little little things that he does sometimes, and the way um, he uh, answers some questions. It's it's just. It's very much um, someone that's uh, that has got his eye on a, on a set goal, rather than someone that's just going absolutely flat out because that's the only thing he can do. Um, because that's that that's the the only way to to, to maximise uh, the, the 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 result when you when, when he was in a car that wasn't quite the best. So yeah, he's he's doing it flawlessly. Um, he's doing it in a way that um, is again left his teammate um, sort of a, a long way behind. Um, Sergio Perez is, uh, is now starting to move away from his early assertion that all you need to do is just have the car the, the way Max has it, and we know that works, therefore I'll just drive it like that. He's now realizing that actually it's it, that's not working for him, and he's starting to veer away and go off on his own setup, and he, got, he did get much closer in qualifying than he has done recently, so... That's working for him, but it just underlines the job that Verstappen is doing. He's absolutely flawless at the moment. I think there's something in in what Mark said there that that sort of speaks volumes about the job that Max is is doing this year, which is how he's sort of sort of moved seamlessly into that role of serious championship protagonist. There was a there was a comment from Ross Braun a few weeks ago where he said he felt <clears throat> well, it might actually it might have been much earlier in the season, but he said that he felt. Um, Max has sort of changed his approach and is being, I guess, sort of the implication being he's being a bit less gung-ho and playing the long game. I disagreed with that at the time because I actually thought that Max had sort of switched towards that in the last couple of years anyway. You saw it with the way he was able to get absolutely everything out of his machinery pretty much week in, week out. Um, so I don't think that changed, but I think what Mark just pointed out there, this this ability to adopt the the long game, 
I think that's what's changed because he hasn't had to do that before. He's just he's been able to go into every weekend knowing that all he needs to do is focus on what focus on getting the most out of the Red Bull because they're probably going to be he's probably going to be third best behind Hamilton and Bottas and he might snipe at one of the Mercedes if they have an off day. Um, the key thing that's different for Verstappen this year is um, that every time he does that, he has that same mindset really into each weekend of wanting to maximise. But every time he does that, it's contributing to a title challenge. So as every as the season grows goes on, as each weekend passes, he's you know he's moved into the championship lead. He's building that championship lead. And he deeply cares about this end goal. That that's now what he's working towards. He hasn't had that in F one before, and it's just been a it's been a seamless transition from you know the sporadic hunter into the out and out hunted. Um, and he has he's he's handled that adjustment probably about as well as we all expected he would when we were discussing last year whether he was capable of putting together a title challenge. Yeah, it's just one of those things that, yeah, you don't doubt it. It's just until until you've seen it, you can't be absolutely sure. And he has, yeah, just moved straight into it. He's uh, it's almost sort of prost like his uh, his approach to, to the championship. Still a long way to go, and inevitably the pressure builds as you get down towards the the title de Newmont. So if it if it's tight come the end of the year, that'll be a, another level of intensity again. But yeah, it's very very difficult to doubt Max Verstappen. It was difficult even before this year, but. He's just doing everything absolutely right. But let's have a look, Scott. Mercedes. Valtteri Bottas was second. Lewis Hamilton fourth. We'll get on to the driver in between Lando Norris shortly. Toto Wolff said after the race, and I quote, it's a good result because if we wouldn't have been stuck behind the McLaren, we would have been racing him. I'm not sure that would have been good enough to win the race, but the race pace was there and would have been good. Are you buying that? No, not at all. <laughs> I don't think even Toto's buying I, that. He may, they they might have been the words coming out of his mouth, but I don't think he expected us to believe that. There's a, there's there must have been a moment as he's saying it where he's just sort of thinking, if any of them, if any of them think that this is correct, I've lost all respect for them. Um, there was there was a moment in the race uh, just after Hamilton made his pit stop um, where he was obviously out fresher tires, so he's he's going faster, and then Max, who must have been what, 25 laps into his stint at this point, just pumped in a new fastest lap. And then like a lap later, pumped in another fastest lap. And it was, it reminded me of, uh, I think we might say this a few times um, with what Max has done when the car's been absolutely on it, but it just reminded me a little bit of the Vettel Red Bull years, you know, just like punching in one of those fastest laps just as a middle finger to everybody else, just to say, yep, I can do this. I think he had he won by such a huge margin, and it's the same as last week. And he had performance in hand. You know, was he ever at any point during this race stressed? The run up to turn three, maybe, um, and at the safety car restart. Apart from that, he was he was untouchable. And both of those Mercedes could have had the freest of free runs at him for the entire Grand Prix, and I don't think they'd have come close. I do think that what Toto said was maybe he was overcompensating for last week. It was all a bit doom and gloom after last week, wasn't it? Oh, we've got no development. Lewis said it. Toto Wolf said it, talking about the focus on next year. And I, th- I wonder if that was a slightly rare misstep from uh, from Toto Wolf, actually, because he's done this uh, this glass half empty, as he's put it, view in the past when they've been doing well and keeping people on their toes with, well, let's not get carried away, etc. 
you know, there's reason to be to be concerned. It's great when you're out in the lead, but when you're struggling and you've just been just pummeled two weeks in a row, which is what's been the case at the Red Bull ring, though we should say it, Paul Ricard could easily have been a Lewis Hamilton win. I think that's perhaps not the tone to take, so they, they've tried to uplift it. Maybe slightly overcompensated, but I do think that they can not, they can expect things to be a little bit better later in the season at other tracks, but at the same time, if you had a choice of which car to, to be driving, it would be the Red Bull because it is all around the uh, the better package. We can bring in the first of our The Race Members Club questions now. Of course, those who have joined our Members Club, which you can find out all about by heading to therace.com and not forgetting the hyphen, you have the chance to send your questions in for our race review podcast. This one's from Simon T, which I'll fling at you, Scott. Do you have any indication of the damage picked up on Hamilton's car and what caused it? Well, it was uh, it was being estimated immediately after the race that it was um, it was a significant amount of damage. I think um, wasn't it? Uh, Toto Wolff said it was what 30, thirty points of downforce or something like that, um, and it seemed to be damage that had been picked up uh, from I, I think just sort of fatigued parts, then just falling foul of how aggressive the curbs are. Uh, so it was basically just sort of deterioration of some of the aero bits, rather than um, like contact or him, you know catching a particular part of it on the curb it, it just it, it seems that it was uh I, I think Andrew Shovelin might refer might have specified it was uh, some some aero parts on the rear caked in and it basically just cost them loads of performance so you you remember we heard that uh there was the radio um exchange where obviously Bottas was told that he could race Hamilton and then it was quite clear that Hamilton wasn't putting up a fight and it just it just made no sense if uh it could have just heavily compromised their 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 race. So it, it just it seemed like it did just seem like the sort of thing that sort of comes out of thin air. Like there's no obvious cause for it, but it's just, you know, even Grand Prix cars as amazing and crazy and technical as they are, they still uh, they are still subject to wear and tear. So I think that's what befell Hamilton today. Yeah, I did have a quick look at the onboards around lap thirty of Hamilton just to see if there was any evidence of a of a wide moment or anything and just a quick glance didn't show anything uh, untoward so it didn't look like he was putting the car in an odd place or anything sometimes you can go a little bit further or over a more aggressive bit and and cause yourself the problem but he didn't seem to at least we may hear more about the exact cause of that later in the week but Mark Scott did mention the the, the little bit of team orders uh, when Hamilton was struggling do you think Mercedes handled that quite sensibly and well? Yeah, at first it was um, stand by Valtteri, don't attack yet. Then it was you're free to race. Then it was actually um, Lewis is going to let you pass. And I think um, under the circumstances, you know, once they'd assessed just how much trouble Lewis was in, um, that was the the fairest way to do it. And then subsequently, I think the idea after that was initially was going to be that they would use Valtteri's DRS to just tow Lewis along and keep him out of reach of Lando but um, his tyres were deteriorating so quick with the aero damage that even that wasn't going to be a feasible strategy so yeah it had to be the second pit stop and he he had nowhere near enough pace to recatch Lando after that so yeah fourth place it was. Yeah just had to play it sensibly there and 
limit the damage. Uh, we have another question from Simon T. Scott, who asks, do we have any indication what the Mercedes upgrade that's coming for Silverstone is? Which also connects to a question from Vitor Gregorio, who asks if Mercedes is right to abandon 2021 development to focus on 2022, given it means practically the end of the 2021 championship. Now, we talked a bit, a bit about this last week, and there has been a little bit of clarification of exactly what they mean by no more development as well. So what, what do we know about what's coming and where they're at? Yeah, I, I'm, I, I can't tell you what exactly they're going to be upgrading on, on, on the car and what's going to be new. Um, we know that basically there, there is there is aerodynamic development. It's when, when that was said last weekend, what was meant is, uh, is that there's no, uh, there's no live development of the 2021 car going on in the wind tunnel. Um, but there were parts that were sort of filtering through the system, shall we say, from uh, previous uh, development work that had been planned for a while and that they're going to exist on the car from Silverstone onwards. So it was kind of a just not not entirely clear. Uh, it was Toto at the time who'd sort of indicated that there wouldn't be any upgrades. What he meant was that there wouldn't be any development from this point onwards back at the factory. Um, there is going to be an, an upgrade of sorts um, for for Silverstone. Um, exactly how much of a difference it's going to make to to the competitive competitiveness of the Mercedes is obviously um, is obviously very difficult to tell. Hamilton seemed to indicate after the race today that um, whatever the upgrade is isn't going to be enough. Uh, at one point, he said that uh, the Red Bulls are, um, uh, I think, miles away was the uh, was was the phrasing that he used. So, yeah, it's. They've obviously been doing they've been doing a lot of work on on with what they've got. Um, Mark mentioned earlier that they've been exploring different setup directions as as well. Um, but there is going to be a, a change in specification on, on the car. They're, they're also they're also still trying to eke a little bit more out on the the power unit. You can't make any performance related upgrades during the season, but there is the hope that they'll be able to optimize it better and, and maybe try and balance the. Uh, energy uh, the the energy management a little bit better um, and also just improve the drivability because I think they're still probably not completely set, uh, completely satisfied with what they've got there either. And as to the the question of whether they're they're right to focus on 2022 with a lot of their research and development, where well, they absolutely are because it's so different next year, and that's not only deciding next year, but it's your zero point for the new era. So it's essential not to compromise. It would be idiocy to compromise next year for the chance to do a little bit more on what's actually a quite shallow development improvement curve that they've got left on on this year's car they've already said that James Allison has said that they're not getting the same gains that they they generally do with time so it would be doubly stupid yeah that's the thing that's made such an easy decision they're looking at this this year's car and it's low rec format with this year's regulations and saying there's hardly any potential left in this car there's hardly any development potential left in it there's not a magic half a second to be found if we put a, t- a tunnel program on it whereas with the high rake there is still there are still gains to be found under these rigs there's still big gains to be found and you know the red bull's taking advantage of that so it's a much the, the, the circumstances of each of them have made their decisions very understandable yeah and interestingly christian horner was asked after the race when they'll stop developing this year's car and he said oh, I'll do it all the way to Abu Dhabi which is obviously just trying to pile on the pressure but there's always things you can do Red Bull obviously are very very good at finding little improvements here and there but yeah we should I don't think we should be too premature in terms of our uh, our rush to 
say that Red Bull's now out of sight. It's just one circuit, the Red Bull ring. Yes, Red Bull certainly has the advantage and they're very clearly favourites, but let's see how things go in the next few races. As Christian Horner said, Silverstone is a Mercedes stronghold. But then again, I think we said something like that about Paul Ricard as well. Well, Mark, let's talk McLaren. Lando Norris certainly enjoys the Red Bull ring. That's his second podium here. He's been in the top six in all five Grand Prix. He's contested at the circuit, qualified second, finished third, split the Mercedes drivers. Where did that performance come from? The McLaren does fly around this circuit. It is very, very good around this circuit. Um, and a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that it's um, this circuit has got, I think, the highest proportion of DRS running and qualifying of any circuit on the calendar. So you've got the three DRS zones, comprises over 30% of the lap. So if you've got a car that's configured to have a big DRS stall and a less efficient wing when non-DRS, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fly in qualifying because the, the, the others have got them balanced in, in slightly the other direction. So that's one reason. The other reason is that uh, it, it, the, the turns one and three and nine just um, are perfectly configured to suit the way that the McLaren just points at a corner, or at least it does if you drive it the way the Lander does, and it gets the tyres straight up to temperature, and his turn one and turn three on that qualifying lap, he took chunks out of Verstappen, who didn't have ideal tyre temperature at the start of the lap because of the, the, the circumstances of his preparation lap. And he took absolutely loads out of him. Then you could see it. It was visual. Um, Verstappen gained most of that back through the very fast six, seven sweeps and, and then um, Lando was marginally ahead through nine where he was absolutely acrobatic all weekend fantastic commitment through there and then it was only the, as the front tyres had sort of, sort of given up by the last corner and he ran understeered out a bit wide and that, that's where Lando got the pole, that's where Max took the pole um, but it was uh, it was nip and tuck right until the last corner. So yeah, uh, it wasn't a perfect lap for the for Max, and it was pretty much uh, you know all and more of the of the McLaren's potential that Lando squeezed from it. And then in the race, you know, you, you can transcend the car's level like that in qualifying. But in the race, you're back to normality and you're back to normal DRS running. And so it, you know, it, it could it was quick enough to keep its um, place for a while, but uh, it was never gonna. It was never gonna keep the Mercedes behind indefinitely. And it, um, you know, Valtteri ended up doing it at the pit stop because he, Lando had the five second penalty. But in the normal running of it, without um, Hamilton's bodywork damage, he'd already he'd already got past um, on on track. So in the normal running of it, Hamilton would have it would have just been a Hamilton second and a, a Norris third with Valtteri trying to get past probably. And then that's, but it, you know, it was well clear of um, their, their, their normal rivals on other tracks. So I don't think, I mean, it'd be nice to be proved wrong, but I don't think this pretends to the form of the McLaren and on the circuits to come. I think this is a very, very special track for the McLaren. Yeah. I, I feel like the McLaren just sort of, um, it just had its peak raised, didn't it here? Um, it was, uh, as, as Mark was saying, this is very well suited to to this circuit. Norris is a driver on absolute fire at the moment, so it's the perfect combination. And um, I think one of the things that uh, I think one of the things that obviously helped was the extent of uh, the, the the Mercedes issues because 
Um, there was obviously still the, the the very clear performance gap to to, to Red Bull. It was it was evident how much faster uh, McLaren was than the um, immediate rivals. But I think uh, you know I think as much as it was McLaren obviously being a bit a bit stronger, maybe the softer compound suited them a bit more. Maybe they learned quite nicely from last weekend. But um, it was obvious that there was a the Merck deficit helped them um, sort of challenge for. For, for second best overall behind behind Red Bull, um, but you you can't fault the job that McLaren and obviously especially Norris's side did in in maximising that opportunity. We saw, didn't we, earlier this year in Monaco with uh, with Ferrari and also in in Azerbaijan, at least in qualifying in the start. That I guess it's close enough now that the the teams behind Red Bull and Mercedes have got close enough that if any of the, if either of those two teams falter. And or there are circumstances that suit a team like McLaren or Ferrari, then there is the chance to you know mix it, mix it up a little bit. It would have been absolutely in- incredible if Norris had been able to see that lap out and get pole. Imagine the, imagine Verstappen trying to. I, I would imagine he'd have had a slightly better go of it than um, than the Mercs did. But just if it had been Max trying to chat to. to get back ahead of him after losing because he didn't have track position at the start. That would have been an amazing thing thing to watch. I suspect the outcome would have still been the same, but it still would have been fun. Um, it's just great to have that, to have a team that's just able to be in the mix, even if, they, if, if, even if this isn't what it's going to be like in the coming races or at, at many, many other races for the rest of the season. It was just really, really cool to see, even if it's just for one weekend. And I have to say, Norris... He's just really impressive the way he's driving. He's delivered a level of consistency that he needed to find because he's he's right from the start in Formula One. He's been clearly very good. He's had some great weekends, but there has been kind of this question mark about whether he can do it week in, week out. And now he, he's not only doing it week in, week out, he's doing it and more. And I have to say, in qualifying, I was following the McLarens on board, so I had Norris's on board for Q3. And that final run, you talked through it, Mark, but just watching him into turn one, you know, when you're watching live, on a qualifying lap and you just sort of see how much speed they're carrying and you sort of think, oh, that's a bit... But it just... It, the car bit and he just beautifully just controlled it. A little bit of opposite lock, but it, it wasn't kind of hanging out and losing momentum. It was just so well driven. And that that moment in turn nine as well where he had to correct, but it wasn't kind of a, a panicky correct where you're hanging on to it. It's kind of right, correct, not losing the momentum. Absolutely brilliant. Norris really seems to be at the top of his game at the moment. Now... Scott, as the pattern has been this year, while Norris soars, teammate Daniel Ricciardo generally struggles. Three-tenths slower than Norris in Q2, and that was a comparison with Ricciardo on softs compared to his teammates' mediums. Got up to 11th on the first lap, 9th on the restart lap, ended up 7th, but was a lap away from 5th place, given he was passed by Sainz and then fell out of the 10-second Perez penalty window. So what did you make of his weekend? Uh, Well, I don't want to say what we've come to expect from him, but... It's probably about as much as Ricardo could do on this track. Um, I know we had this conversation uh, during it was it was either during the race or before the race. I can't remember Ed, but I I didn't expect Ricardo's weekend to be any better than a week ago because the way I interpreted what he and McLaren were saying a week ago is that this track, the Red Bull Ring, exacerbates the limitations that Ricardo has at the moment, and it's clearly a very long process to try and. Um, recalibrate himself to learn how to drive the the McLaren. The way that car needs to be driven is clearly something that he can't do properly, just automatically. Um, and if that process isn't that 
quick to fix, then I think coming back to the same place where it was an absolute nightmare for him a few days later is just going to yield exactly the same result. Yes, there are going to be specific things he can learn and put immediately into practice and know it's the same circuit, but with the conditions also being different and things like the the tyre compounds being softer, I was just honestly expecting this to be a part two of what we saw last weekend for Daniel. And and that's 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 what it was. He he clearly can't he can't get close to Lando on on one lap at the moment when he's finding the limitations as severe as he has at the Red Bull ring. But then what you see in the race is that we we know that that delta between teammates tends to come down with, uh, between qualifying and the race because it's not on the limit. Uh, I think I think Ricardo takes it pretty far down. I don't think he's far off Lando on race pace at all. Maybe a tenth, maybe two tenths. And we know he's a great racer. He's got fantastic racecraft. He'll be probably frustrated that he lost out on whether it, I can't remember if it was his last lap or his penultimate lap. The way the way that happened um, uh, would have been very frustrating. Um, but I think he made a small mistake at turn three, but otherwise he did what he could. Um, you know, he he made progress where he could. He was feisty where he could be, and he was pretty quick when he when he could be during the race and so he's managed to come away from here with a decent run of points um obviously after the disappointment of last weekend so i guess it's kind of a silver lining for him and as he said afterwards he just really needed a fun race and i think he did genuinely enjoy that grand prix because it's been a bit pretty battering sort of 10 days or so for him very confusing very up and down so to actually come away from it on a relative high i think it can't hurt yeah he needs to be at least salvaging those those reasonable race results obviously not at Norris's level I was slightly more not necessarily optimistic but I was hoping to see a little bit more of an improvement because it is a repeat yeah slightly different conditions I was hoping to see a little bit more progress from Ricardo just in getting those corner entries right and listening to the onboard uh, camera and the radio during practice and and qualifying it's, it is clear he's doing exactly what you've said he's just struggling to to recalibrate and he'll you know, he'll get told to take a slightly more progressive entry and then he'll be told to break a bit later at turn one and he'll kind of adapt in one bit and then start adapting somewhere else and then he'll have slipped somewhere else because you just feel he's just thinking about it. It's just not remotely natural. So it's going to be uh, yeah, a long, hard season for him, but he is a driver of uh, of high quality. Now, of course, Norris had a five-second penalty during the race and inevitably we've had several the race members club members with questions about this and all the penalties, in fact, Josh Smith asks, what rule was Lando deemed to have broken in the incident with Perez? And he also adds that he sees it as a racing incident. And Tamara Salter asks for our opinion of the three penalties that were issued. So we'll work our way through them and see if we agree. So Scott, lap four collision between Norris and Perez first. That resulted in Perez dropping from third to 11th after he ploughed through the turn four gravel. Five second penalty for Norris. Uh, yeah, so to um, to answer Josh's question... I think the rule that Lando was deemed to have broken is uh, any rule of any law of physics. Basically, um, he's guilty of not being able to hold all of the momentum that his car had and stop it from running to to the outside. I, I, I see that as a a racing incident. Um, how many times have we been here on this podcast and said that uh, an overtake, an attempted overtake around the outside, is basically living by the sword? And if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. It's a risky move. If you pull it off, you're a hero. If you don't pull it off, nine times out of ten, you probably end up running off track. 
Um, Leclerc even admitted afterwards, because we'll obviously get onto this, that, that that he had to accept that as someone who went around the outside. So, yeah, on this on this one, I thought I thought it's the sort of thing that I don't think it should be penalised, but I also suspected it would be because we've seen a few times, even last year, same track, same corner, Albon versus Hamilton, that it does easily get uh, slapped with a five second penalty. So I uh, I didn't think it was. Uh, I didn't think it was Norris's fault or merited a penalty, but I, I suspected it would be as soon as it happened. Do you agree with that, Mark? Yes, I do. Yeah, um, he wasn't driving out there. Uh, Perez hadn't got the move done. He wasn't alongside. It wasn't like uh, last year with Albon on Hamilton, where Albon's actually got the move done. He's ahead. He just hasn't got the full car clear. Um, even then, you, you, you would argue that was a racing incident, but this this was more so. Was, Perez hadn't even, you know, got, got himself ahead. So, no, for me, that was just if Perez wanted to hang on around the outside in the hope that Lando would somehow just stand on the brakes or, um, you know, somehow magically make the car uh, have need less track on the exit. Well, yeah, fair enough, but. but Shouldn't be surprised if it didn't work and he ends up in the gravel. No, I, don't, I don't see that's worthy of um, anyone getting a penalty. Yeah, I think there's a point where Perez gets very slightly ahead into the corner, but then a fraction later, Norris, it's very clear that, that what's going to happen and Perez should have just realised where that was going because it was always going to go into a gap that's disappeared. So, Mark, next up, Perez versus Leclerc. Turn four, same corner, rolls reversed, Perez on the inside, and he made contact with uh, Leclerc. Five-second penalty for Perez for that one. That one's more justified. I still, I would call it a racing incident, but I would say that if you're going to be strict on handing out penalties, Perez was a bit ham-fisted in that. He was um, on the inside. He was considerably slowed. He could considerably um, compromise his entry and then had to sort of release some steering to, to actually get himself in the way. So he'd actually had to take some, you know, uh, active, active part rather than just letting the car go out there and blocking the other guy. You had to actually steer it out there, and that's slight. That's slightly different. So I would say if there was any of those three uh, incidents uh, worthy of a penalty, it was that one. But even that one, I would have just probably, uh, probably just uh, give it. What, what do they call it? Telling off in, in official terms. Uh, reprimand reprimand yes I was thinking admonishment but I knew it wasn't that yeah I think it may be worthy of a reprimand but nothing more than that the last thing we need is them introducing admonishments into the regulations what's the distinction admonishment, admonishment and reprimand what, how would you admonishment it was be slightly gentler three admonishments would equal a reprimand <laughs> I feel like I feel like an admonishment needs to have an ethical aspect to might it, I uh, suggest reprimand. that that wasn't quite right Checo something like that would that be an admonishment Especially if they phrased it like that. I quite I quite like that idea. Um, so, yeah, I basically agree with you on that, Mark. I do think it was the worst of them. I could live with it being a five-second penalty. I'm quite happy for it not to be. Scott, are you in the same camp? Yeah, pretty much. It was cat-handed. There was contact, so it was a bit worse than what uh, Norris did to to to, to Perez. Um, and, yeah, Leclerc basically didn't have a chance to give up the corner, did he? Because he kind of got biffed out of the way a little bit. So, yeah, that, that one didn't offend me as a penalty. And let's try and get some disagreement on the last one, Scott. Perez versus Leclerc again. Leclerc went around the outside at turn six, ended up taking to the gravel. Five-second penalty for Perez. Yeah. Uh, another one that was just... I, I, I just don't 
I don't think that should be a penalty. Um, it's a high, it's a it's a high speed corner, very difficult to uh, go side by side through there. We did see later on in the race Russell and Alonso go through there side by side, and Russell nearly lost a place because of it. Um, it he, the only reason he didn't is because he then got very brave into the following corner and sent it back down the inside of Alonso. Um, so you could argue that that's the template and that that is exactly what drivers should do. It can be done. And if you're going to almost lose the position, then that's just hard racing. I, I agree uh, to, to, to a point on, on that. But at the same time, just because just because you can go through there side by side without contact or the car on the outside getting pushed wide doesn't mean that it merits a penalty if the car on the outside does get pushed wide. It's still a racing incident. If it's 55 45 or 60 40 Perez is Perez's fault it still shouldn't be it still shouldn't be a penalty like I said earlier Leclerc admitted that he'd um he'd taken a risk by doing it and at some point the car on the outside has to accept that it's it's not going to work so I'd have preferred to have seen that um dealt with as a racing incident but they they set the precedent with the the Norris penalty the first time so it it had to be a it had to be a five second penalty yeah, that, that becomes the, the difficult thing. And there's two things on that. Firstly, Perez did have a little bit of a, a rear snap that he had to correct that, that forced him a little bit wider. He was trying to hold it tighter. So if you're asking a driver to hold it tighter, there's always that risk. And secondly, I, I did say something to nobody in particular while watching that live, which of Leclerc, which I, I just said, no, where are you going? Because it, you just from the moment it started, you're just thinking, this is going to end up with you taking a bite of the gravel. So I, I didn't really see where it, where it was going. So, Mark, you've got a last chance to, to disagree on that. Are you going to... Just are you in agreement on that? Or do you think that should have definitely been a penalty? Was it no, it shouldn't have been a penalty. Paris? It was. Um, it was. Uh, I think probably some emotion involved in Leclerc um, making such a a ballsy move. It was. Um, you know, he was still angry at uh, the earlier incident, probably, and uh, he just launched it with full commitment. What wonderful commitment and very very brave. But that doesn't. You know, that alone doesn't guarantee that you should be. Um, the other guy should let you through. And uh, Perez is, you know, Perez is pretty hard, and um, he's, he's borderline unfair sometimes. But I don't think he was on that occasion. He was just hard. Yeah, I think it was a slightly belligerent overtaking attempt by Leclerc, one that's uh, got him a little bit of trouble. And there's a a couple of broad questions about the the penalties. Tomorrow, Salter says it would be a shame if drivers were hesitant about making an overtake for fear of incurring a penalty. And Peter Clements asks, why does F1 keep going in circles when it comes to penalising hard racing incidents? Because no doubt, after today, there will be calls for more leniency and then gradually will revert to silly penalties again. How can we fix this, Mark? Simple question. Um, I don't like the penalty system. I never have. And I don't think you can encapsulate the infinity of racing situations into words because there will always be... um, situations which are way more dangerous than have been accounted for in the words, which don't theoretically carry a penalty, and vice versa, that are perfectly innocuous but break some wording of some regulation that's been thought of with something else completely different in mind. So I think you, my preference would be for a very strong ex-driver referee and he makes the calls and he uses the black flag when necessary and that, that would be it. I, I, I really don't – even even if he gets the call wrong, just like a football referee, you know, it's his call. And um, then that if you can combine that with um, some way of uh, having 
track limits whereby uh, they're not pended on. And um, we had a very positive response to the uh, the gravel traps and reduced here at six and seven rather than the um, the, the the really really punishing curbs. Um, I think some combination of that would be way better than some convoluted and ever more uh, complex system that just doesn't. It's never it's never going to work. It's not, and it's never going to be consistent because. Every situation is different, and every person judging it is, is different. So you can't be surprised that it's um, the, the 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 rulings are inconsistent. The system makes the inconsistency. It's the wrong system. The the inconsistency is the biggest issue for me, and 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 what Mark was was describing there about having you know one a strong a strong figure that's able to lay down a you know, an emphatic ruling is, is the key for me because we, we don't have that at the moment. You know, I, I, I'll sort of be writing something to this effect in a little bit more detail. But my big thing at the moment is right now, how can a driver tell what the stewards consider to be a fair move? Because when when Verstappen forced Leclerc wide two years ago, that was just hard racing. He won the race because of it and, and we all loved it. Um, but then, and, and the same a few races later, do you remember when Leclerc bumped Hamilton wide into the uh, second chicane at Monza? Um, <clears throat> but then last year, Hamilton got that penalty for pushing Albon off at turn four. And the following week, uh, Stroll absolutely dive-bombed Ricardo at turn three. And it was only Ricardo taking evasive action that avoided the shunt. And Stroll didn't get anything for it. And then we get to this year, two weeks ago, Gasly forces Norris wide at... Paul Ricard, they both go off track as a result. Gasly's come from behind to launch that move, and it's that's fine. So Norris, for example, was literally given a precedent two weeks ago that you can force another driver off the track if you if you have to, and it's and it's okay. And this weekend he's been penalised for it. So with that level of inconsistency, I don't know how as a driver how you are meant to know where the limit is. Because it seems to me that every few weeks that limit can be changed. And I think that is a terrible way to manage racing when, as Mark put it so eloquently, the, the you can't confine the, the, the infinity of racing within a few few rules. So they're, they're trying to make something black and white and then they also then don't even apply that consistently. So that that's maddening to me. Yeah, it's it's a stupid situation to have got into. They are dynamic situations that require a certain soft, a subtle, a certain subtleness of interpretation, shall we say? And while you can't let people get away with outright cheating or ludicrous moves, you have got to just police it more sensibly. And just having too many precise rules actually doesn't work because it doesn't cover all those situations. Should we move on to Ferrari, Scott? Difficult time in qualifying again partly thanks to the refusal to run softs in Q2. Sainz and Leclerc started 10th and 12th. Quick in the race, though, another well-executed Sainz race to 5th after starting on the hards. Ferrari seemed to have got on top of those tyre troubles they had in, in Ricard and got the balance about right here, haven't they? Yeah, um, there was something Mark was explaining earlier about the impact of the the DRS zones on the, the McLaren's competitiveness, and Ferrari seemed to be... Uh, hypothesizing even last week that that was where their downturn in qualifying form had come. Um, there was initially a suggestion that maybe they'd overcorrected after their m- monstrous tyre struggles at Paul Ricard and basically made the car 
you know, done so much to protect the car and the tyres for the race that they've taken away some quality performance. But the team doesn't think that's the case at all. They they think it's just circuit specific. They lacked that pace over one lap. I think the DRS theory makes perfect sense if um, if 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 that's something that the the Ferrari is fundamentally weaker on with the the, the DRS effect, then the this, the phenomenon that Mark was explaining earlier that applies so positively to McLaren is going to apply negatively to Ferrari. But then in the race, they have the the, the usual level of competitiveness. Um, obviously, when you're in a DRS train, it's it's a unfortunate, but you're at least in the toe of the car in front as well. So that'll be helping. Um, so I think this was just, um, we obviously, the, the absolute peaks of Monaco and Baku qualifying wise seem a long way ago. Um, but the car is still is clearly very good uh, in in race trim, and I think what these two races have shown more than anything is that while France underlined, maybe even exposed the extent of the front tire degradation weakness, I don't think that car has a fundamental tire management weakness, especially when it comes to the rears. It does it doesn't feel like something that is inherently sensitive. Um, I remember when in Barcelona they had a they had a really good run there. Didn't have any tire issues at all relative to their opposition. This feels a bit more like that. So I wonder if it's sort of showing that the um, that France was sort of the the sort of exaggerated exception. And as long as it's not front limited, they're going to be okay. But I think when we go back to Silverstone, it'll it could go closer to what we saw in France, where they're weaker in in, in race trim. Um, but here they had they had decent race pace. It's just obviously they were starting from an uncharacteristically lower place in the queue, just because it just didn't go their way in qualifying. Also, in qualifying, they um, very deliberately um, said we we don't want to get through to Q three if it's at the expense of using the soft. So we're just point blank refusing to use the soft, and if that means we don't get to Q three, fair enough. And Alpha Tauri and Aston Martin took, you know, prioritized Q3 and put the softs on and had pretty you know, mediocre races as a result because the soft this weekend was just not a, a decent race tie. And that, that that was known going in. So um, I think Ferrari took the right call there. They were actually racing Alpha Tauri and Aston Martin this weekend and comfortably beat them. Ferrari were slightly surprised that that strategy still. Um... They, they still got done by by Williams and George Russell in qualifying. I think the rest of the strategy didn't doing that work perfectly. They just didn't expect to be jumped by George. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was a standout performance from George. Yeah, you, you can't account for George Russell in qualifying. It's just a complete wild card that's uh, that's not to be trusted, except for the fact he's going to be very quick. And quickly, Mark Leclerc was eighth. Connected to that, we have a question from Niels Join who I've probably mispronounced, in which case apologies, who says it looks like Leclerc will have his hands full keeping his teammate behind him in the championship. How do you guys think this battle will unfold over the course of the season? Sainz did have the stronger weekend. Yeah, he did. Um, when, um, when when the car's not quite there, quite often you see uh, Leclerc sort of really trying to monster it around and, and trying to you know wring, wring the car's neck and Sainz will be more precise with his inputs and quite often that gives a, a better outcome. Um, Leclerc's inherently slightly faster. Um, science has got a probably a more scientific grasp of the dynamics and can explain them better. Uh, today's result was really just um, science making a better call on which 
tire to use first so that uh, because the medium was the better tire so he was on the medium in the latter part of the race and was therefore much quicker in the second half of the race when he's on the mediums and Leclerc was on the hard um, so you know they had to make the switch uh, that that was really all that defined them today. It was a better it was a better call, and I don't know if that was just a a toss of the coin, which one of you is going to do it, or whether that was a considered science um, de- decision that he a shrewd call that he made. I don't know, but um, yeah, they're, they're very they're very evenly matched, and they're very well they're very well matched. They they the former they give the team a good bandwidth, and I don't think it's a case of. Um, one driver's career will be destroyed by beaten by the other. They're, they're two very high-level drivers, and I think um, they're going to. Arguably, it's the best. It's the best lineup on the grid. And I think you can actually argue that it's gone pretty much as expected. That comparison between the two, everything you you run through there, Mark, was pretty much what we were kind of expecting from what we knew about Sainz and Leclerc. Great driver lineup, two points separating them, but of course Leclerc didn't get to start at, at Monaco. So we'll see where things are at at the end of the season. Scott, talking Alpha Tauri, Pierre Gasly, as we come to expect, had a decent race to ninth place, as Mark mentioned earlier, compromised by having to two-stop after starting on softs. Yuki Tsunoda, he was 12th. He lined up on the grid behind Gasly. Good qualifying performance. There was a lot positive from him. But he not once but twice got penalised five seconds for crossing the pit entry line. <laughs> yeah. Um, what? So weird. Just really weird that it happened. That they... They were here last week, and it didn't happen there. So, the I can't imagine he's really doing anything different inside the car, and yet twice it manifested itself in a rule-breaking pit entry. So that was weird, and it was also weird that AlphaTauri didn't seem to communicate to him that he'd got the time penalty for the first one, probably because knowing... Yuki is not the uh, not the most in control person emotionally behind the wheel. Probably didn't want to, you know, irritate him. I was going to say something else, but I thought I'd keep it. Uh, <laughs> I'd keep it polite. <laughs> um, and I suspect that's why they didn't tell him until he was coming back into the pits again. But I think they might have told him too late, and because I don't, because he got told he was he had a penalty as he was coming into the pits. But it wasn't until he was actually coming into the pit lane itself that uh, he was told it was for crossing the white line at entry, by which time he's already done it again for a second time. So, you know, as weird as it is, surely you tell the driver so they've got every chance of not making that stupid mistake for a second time. Because this is the thing, when it comes to tiny margins of position in the cars... I'm actually surprised stuff like this doesn't happen more often. Crossing, you know, touching the white line on pit exit, uh, being slightly out of position at the grid uh, at the start with the grid slot, like like Gasly had a few races ago. Um, but for this to have happened twice in the same race to the same driver is just a bit weird. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to make an unfair sort of uh, connection where there isn't one, but. I'm not I'm not totally surprised that it's happened to Sonoda because like I said before with the emotional stuff over the radio sometimes it's like if there's one thing he does lack as a driver it is a bit of composure so I just wonder if there's if it's that if there's you know just a little bit of lapse of concentration or lacking focus but whatever it was it was uh, 
regrettable in the extreme. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And ultimately, if they didn't tell him, and I haven't been through all of his uh, onboards to, to be sure of that, then kind of the, it goes on the pit wall that the second one happened because he didn't know it was a mistake. So uh, anyway, interesting because that could have been a really nice weekend for Sonoda and that slightly marred it. Now, Mark, George Russell, we've already mentioned him. He had that miracle qualifying, got through to Q3 and did it on the mediums in Q2, which he had no business doing really. He lost 10th place in that long-awaited first points finish for Williams to Fernando Alonso with three and a half laps to go. He did slip back to 12th on the first lap from 8th on the grid. So was he unfortunate to miss out at the death or did he only have himself to blame? No, I think it's just uh, one of those things that he, he got. Um, he had to take avoidance on the first lap of Sonoda. Sonoda locked up and veered in front of him, which um, forced him into an emergency brake, which allowed about three cars to go around his outside. I think that was probably the the beginning of where his, his race began to go wrong. Uh, but yeah, I think ten, tenth is about you know as much as he could reasonably have expected, and. Um, he, he was unfortunate to encounter a, you know, an on-form Fernando Alonso c- coming at him. And if Fernando was even saying, uh, "I was really, really sorry that it was George that I was catching," because he, you know, he, he's a very big fan of George, and, and he, he knew he was depriving of, of, of taking that point for Williams if he succeeded. But um, yeah, it was a, a crack and scrap between them, I thought, and two two really hard races, a, a generation apart, but um, very similar behind the wheel. And I thought, uh, yeah, it was a it was a great little scrap, and yeah, George lost out. So that's just how it, just how it goes. But the Alpine, the Alpine is probably a faster car than a Williams, so probably not that. He, you know, not he couldn't really fault him. Really, he 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 put up a fight, and um, ultimately uh, he succumbed. Yeah, and all the cars that ended up finishing ahead of him that had started behind him are all faster cars, so not much you can do about uh, that necessarily. Uh, Scott, we've mentioned Alonso's recovery to 10th. That was more than he anticipated. Now, he did get held up by Sebastian Vettel in qualifying in Q2. Vettel did impede him, yes, cost him a top 10 place in a Q3 slot, but you weren't impressed with that penalty, were you? Can you just explain why? Uh, yeah, just because um, I don't like that uh, impeding seems to be zero tolerance. Um, I understand it in principle. I know that it is... Um, I know that it is very unfortunate and they should definitely be doing uh, strict and harsh things to try and stamp it out. But a little bit like where how we were describing racing earlier, uh, I think the nature of qualifying circumstances and the cues that we see, it's a multidimensional thing. It's not, the, these things don't happen in a bubble. You know, Vettel didn't block Alonso at the final corner purely through choice and spite. So, I, I just wish they, I just wish they factored that in more. Uh, Michael Massey said that the stewards did factor that in and sort of hinted that Vettel might have got a, an even harsher uh, penalty because of uh, how blatant the block on Alonso was. But I don't really buy that. Um, they they let off signs and Bottas for breaking a rule that was put in place for this weekend, not to create space from the entry of turn nine to the entry of turn 10. Signs and Bottas were part of a gaggle of cars doing that, but they were the only two that were investigated for it. And as a direct, direct result of that, Vettel ends up 
screwed and planted basically at the final corner and and it gets in Alonso's way having previously been mugged off because he was trying to adhere to that instruction creating a gap from the run to turn eight to turn nine and as he's creating that gap a bunch of cars come steaming past him and then back him up by breaking the rule and creating a gap at turn nine so I just thought it was I thought it was such an unnecessary punishment and I could just about accept it from the point of view of okay, you are trying to implement zero tolerance on impeding, so that's fine. Okay, I'll stomach that. But to then let Signs and Bottas off for breaking that new turn 9, turn 10 rule on the grounds of other cars were involved and it was a complicated situation and not be able to to, to give Vettel the same leeway, I, it just, to me, it summed up the whole mess around the stewarding where they have black and white stuff for certain things, and then they just seem to be able to create different tolerances for others. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Having watched all the onboards, I don't really see what else Vettel could have done there. Alonso did come through to get that point. Esteban Ocon was nowhere again this weekend out in Q1. He made some sort of vague comments about being suspicious about his car wanting some parts change, although he wasn't specific. So I imagine we'll come back to Ocon in a, in a later podcast. But also, in the last lap of the race, there was that bizarre collision between Kimi Räikkönen and Sebastian Vettel while they were battling just behind Russell. Räikkönen got a 20-second penalty for that, which relegated him from 16th to, well, 16th, as he limped home behind Stroll, Giovinazzi and Latifi. Colin Gallagher from our Members Club Asked, who do you think was at fault for that? Scott, who are you blaming? Uh, Raikkonen. Um, he, I just don't think he was concentrating. I think he might have been a bit distracted from by Russell ahead. And there might have been an element of Vettel coming over a little bit, but Raikkonen had plenty of room and it was just a needless bit of contact. Yeah, 100%, Kimmy. Oh, there's not enough arguments uh, going on there. But yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I agree. It's one of those strange ones. You should have kind of seen it coming, <laughs> really, if nothing else, because you don't want to have those collisions. But uh, anyway, we did have a question from Colin Gallagher from our members club who asked for our thoughts on Kimmy's strategy. Should he have stayed out longer on the hards like Sainz did? Well, as always, I was watching what was going on down the order, and I, I don't think it would have made any difference. Ultimately, the strategy of starting on hards and running long that Sainz did work well partly because the Ferrari is a competitive car in the race the Alpha is not quite so competitive and if you looked at it Raikkonen's pit stop timing was dictated by when that gaggle of cars he needed to come back through he could rejoin behind them he had a bit of a tyre offset compared to Alonso a bit more compared to others but ultimately he wasn't lapping quickly enough when he was on those hards at the end of the stint to justify staying on them. It would have just been giving himself a bigger offset, but then he'd have had more time to make up because he'd have lost ground to people. So, yeah, I don't think that was a, a strategy problem. And, Mark, to finish off, let's get back to the front of the field because the big off-track story was Lewis Hamilton signing on for two more years with Mercedes. Seems like good news for Mercedes, Hamilton, and probably Formula 1 as a whole, and it means we'll get some more years of him and Max Verstappen doing battle, hopefully. So, makes sense all around, doesn't it? Yeah, it's great. Fantastic. Um, it's. I think it would have been really disappointing, especially if um, if Mercedes continues to struggle this year. It would have been really disappointing for Hamilton to bow out because it would just, you know, make it look like he he was giving up, even if he was even if he was retiring for entirely different reasons. So at least this, um, we know we we'll get to see the reset of the new regulations, and we get to see a continuation of of, of that battle. And um, you know, it's the, the the battle of the generations is usually um, all too brief, and I think we're we're being privileged to see this one play out. And so we've got another couple of years to to 
to enjoy it. Yeah, it's going to be magnificent to watch. And of course, there's always the danger Hamilton could retire during it, but he's showing no signs of wanting to slow down and walk away from Formula One at the moment. Scott, what do we know about the identity of his teammate next year? Is it simply Bottas versus Russell? Yes. <laughs> would you like to lay out the landscape? Has it been decided? Is it still being chosen? What would you do? Uh, I, I assume it is still uh, still being decided. Um, I... If I if I was a gambling man, I have been in the past and come off very badly as a result of it. So maybe don't trust me too much on this. I I would I I think it, I'm leaning towards it being Russell actually. Um, I think Hamilton getting it done now, uh, and doing it for two years tells me that uh, well first first of all obviously that he he's Mercedes doesn't have to plan for his immediate succession, but they're not going to bin off Russell until 25 or 20 until 2024. If, the, if, if, if we buy into the argument of, Oh, Hamilton doesn't want Russell alongside him, then that means no Russell at Mercedes until 2024. Merck aren't going to take that chance. They know how good Russell is. And if they don't put him in the car sooner rather than later, they're going to lose him. Um, and I, I just think that the, the timing suggests that as we've expected, and as Mercedes has said all along, you know, Hamilton doesn't have any bearing on the identity of his teammate. So I don't take I haven't taken any of this to be an indicator that Hamilton's staying, that means Bottas is gonna stay because he loves Bottas. I, I actually think it's it's just more likely that it's gonna be George. I don't see any real obstacle to it. Um I think he keeps strengthening his case, making it watertight. Um I don't know when it will be done, but it wouldn't surprise me if either at the British Grand Prix or during the summer break, they announced George instead of Valtteri for next year. Yeah, I go the same way. Valtteri Bottas is a good teammate for Lewis Hamilton. If Hamilton was four years younger, three years younger, you might do something different and consider it. But the simple fact is they do have to plan for for that future, especially given you never know. He could do a he could have a Nico Rosberg moment and at the end of next year say, actually, oh, I, I am going to re- retire because I'm sure there's that mechanism that allows it in the contracts. And Mercedes do have to think towards the future. I think Lewis Hamilton would be quite happy to have Bottas as his teammate, but I think anyone who thinks Hamilton's going to fear anyone alongside him, I, I think, doesn't know a great deal about Lewis Hamilton. So I think I'd go down the, the, the Russell line. Mark, are you going to dissent this one last chance to create an argument? Yeah, I'm going to dissent and I'm going to say, of course it's Russell. It's not even it's not even a decision. It's, it's just, <laughs> yeah, of course it's Russell. What what you need to do now, Ed, is when this podcast gets edited, you need to go back into past episodes and find a point where Mark has said the words Nikita Mazepin and just slot them in there as his single as his two word answer to your question of who's going to be Hamilton's teammate next year. And then just let let Mark's Twitter notifications go absolutely berserk. <laughs> Well, he has driven Mercedes Formula One ex- uh, machinery fairly extensively, so you never know. I was going to say stranger things have happened, but they, they haven't, have they? So I don't think they have. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's not going to happen. So that's a good moment for us to finish. So thanks very much, Scott and Mark. For more from them and the rest of the team, head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. There's Mark's in-depth race analysis there to be read, along with my ever-controversial driver ratings. You can disagree with me in the comments. Scott's also going to be taking a look at Lando Norris and Super Licence Penalty. 
penalty points. If you enjoy your racing podcast, which presumably you do if you've got this far, check out our sister titles, Bring Back V10s and the Race IndyCar podcast, among others. And if you enjoy our witterings and feel so inclined, don't hesitate to leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. And if video's your thing, check out the race's YouTube channel. After a frenetic triple header, we're going to turn our attention to the calm before the British Grand Prix storm and the first sprint qualifying weekend. The Race F1 podcast will be back soon to take a close look at what to expect from what could be a very different kind of Grand Prix weekend. <laughs> <laughs>